Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Our speaker is Richard Thomas, who is talking about the Boer War and other colonial adventures. Part A. colonial wars and see if any themes emerge, and they do. You've got there a picture of the pre-colonial states, really, of Africa beginning. You can see a few that you know about. And that's a map of South Africa, which I showed for a few minutes, the modern map of South Africa. Now, the Boer War is a wonderful example of a disastrous colonial war. It's a, it's a very good example of how to win a war and lose the peace. Now, it'll come as no surprise that the origins of the war lie in the much earlier period. It will also come as no surprise to learn or remember that subduing the Boers was extremely difficult. Now, the takeover of Cape Town by the British during the Napoleonic Wars and their gradual spread north meant that the Afrikaner-speaking Boers, particularly the farmers, felt very threatened, not only by the British themselves, who were expanding their empire, but the laws abolishing slavery, and giving the black residents certain rights, because the Boers believed, and had plenty of scripture to prove their case, that the local San and Khoi were subhuman, and could not therefore be treated as normal human beings. It would be wrong to do so, and they certainly couldn't tolerate their checks on this behavior uh, that the British laws implied. So we know they engaged themselves in the Great Trek in the 1830s, and the Great Trek saw the immigration north of hundreds of Boer families, mostly farmers, looking for land. They couldn't move into Natal because most of that was run by the Zulus and the British had coastline, i.e. Durban. So they settled in what would become the Transvaal, Transvaal across the Vaal River and the Orange Free State. They fought the Zulus on their right flank, first led by Shaka and then by his half-brother Dingaan. A column under Ratif was massacred in 1838. The fact that Ratif was an undischarged bankrupt and a bit of a con artist doesn't usually colour the picture that you read in South Africa. The Boers under Andreas Pretorius then took their revenge of the Battle of Blood River. Hundreds of Zulus were killed and Dingaan was forced into exile. And if you go to that battle site, you see a circle of copper wagons. It's really quite a creepy place. So the Afrikaners were secure and in control of the high, dry, central plains of the northern part of South Africa, Orange Free State, and Bloemfontein and further north. Now, there is a map of the, the migration of you know, Cape Colony, which was the very big part of, it's now three provinces of South Africa, up to the north. Some of them went into Zululand, some got massacred, some went further on north, but they, they didn't kind of settle, and there's Blood River slap bang in the middle of it. The British kind of accepted this. The Zulus were defeated, if not pacified. Uh, these, these two states, Orange Free State and Transvaal, were more or less independent. They were left alone, and they might have been left alone for a long time, except for two very significant events. One was the discovery of diamonds in Kimberley, and Kimberley was just outside the Cape Province, so the British quickly included it into Cape Province. And as a result of that, came out of that, there's a map, there's the Cape Colony, it's now three provinces. There's the Orange Free State, there's Transvaal, and there's Basutu land, which is now in Basutu. Natal was British, Zululand was Zulu, actually, and uh, one or two other places down here. But so Cape Colony was, was half, if not more, of the geography of South 
Africa. Now, the British annexed Transvaal in 1877, and when you try and find out why, there was almost no reason. They thought, well, we, we're annexing lots of places, we may as well take over Transvaal. And the Boers didn't like it. Under Kruger, uh, they fought back, and certainly the Boers won, really. They did win the only significant battle at Majuba Hill. Now, the Boers called this war the First War of Independence. <laughs> and uh, Gladstone didn't want to engage in a distant war, and he very much disliked colonial adventures, and accepted, really accepted independence for Transvaal. The terms were agreed in 1884, but in 1885, they discovered gold, the largest gold field in the world in Johannesburg. So the British hands-off policy was reconsidered. Uh, and the, but the gold was undeniably in Africana country. The poor, bankrupt, agrarian economy of Transvaal, suddenly they became very rich. And in 1897, Rand was producing a quarter of the world's gold. The mines attracted particularly British capital and particularly British miners. Lots of miners from Cornwall and Wales and all sorts went there. It needed massive investments of machinery, railways, townships, buildings, etc., etc., and it created from nothing towns and cities. So the pastoral idyll of Transvaal was shattered. Now that is not a trivial remark. They wanted an old-fashioned Eden in the country. They, they wanted an agrarian paradise because that's what the Boer myth was all about. Suddenly, it was an urban environment with big cities. The population of all of those cities was majority outlanders, outlanders. But the conservative, the Calvinist Boers did not like this particularly, and they were certainly determined to keep control of their state. Kruger was the man, and under Kruger, the outlanders were highly taxed, and they were denied all political rights. The British government did not actually want a confrontation, but unsurprisingly, Cecil Rhodes and his friends did want a confrontation. So Kruger is one of the players in this story, uh, an old-fashioned Calvinist leader of the most conservative kind. And the other big player was, of course, Rhodes, uh, who we know quite a lot about, empire builder, etc., etc., and um, determined to get and stay very rich. So by 1890, the scene was set for a showdown between the aggressive British business interest, not the government, led by Rhodes, and the, by now, rather corrupt, sort of rather comfortable, self-seeking, rich Boers of the Transvaal who wanted to, to use the money to help the Africana farming community, as well as themselves, and not pander to British-led international finance. What a silly man. Now, the, perhaps the beginning of the war was the Jameson Raid in 1895, with clear, explicit backing from Rhodes, covert approval of London, Jameson launched a raid into Transvaal from what was then, now, southern Rhodesia. He and Rhodes hoped that Outlanders, the Outlanders, would rise up to support them. However, they were earning good money and they were not primed. They had too much to lose, so they didn't. The Transvaal authorities, unsurprisingly, knew the raid was coming and tracked 600 men for four days. They then surrounded them and in the engagement which followed, the Jameson force lost 65 men dead, uh, while the Boers lost one. The results were predictable. Rhodes resigned as PM of Cape Town, and when telegrams of support were found in Jameson's bags, the game was up. And Jameson himself was imprisoned, I think in Wandsworth prison for a while, but then the Rand Lords paid a fine and he was released. And he ended up as Premier of Cape Province uh, ten years later. Slightly less predictable was the telegram sent by the Kaiser 
congratulating Kruger for seeing off the British. Interesting prelude to a longer story a little bit later. Jameson were in prison briefly, as I said, but Chamberlain, the British colonial secretary who clearly supported the raid, was exonerated in an official inquiry. How unusual. Now, as Jan Smut said in 1906, after the war, the Jameson raid was the real declaration of war. And that is so in spite of the four-year truce which followed. The aggressors consolidated their alliance. The defenders, on the other hand, silently and grimly prepared for the inevitable. The next four years, indeed, the Boers, led by Kruger, added to their armory, bringing in, among other things, 37,000 Mauser rifles, 40 million rounds of ammunition. 25,000 men, essentially local militias, were equipped with these weapons. The much weaker and poorer Orange Free State concluded a pact with Transvaal, and even during the war itself, it was Transvaal that mattered because that is where the gold was. So the Uitlanders were given no rights at all. And they were annoyed about it, but they were earning a good living. But it was an unresolved problem. It was a genuine grievance, if you like, but it was blown up by Rhodes, the, the Rand Lords, and the British. Uh, it could have been managed in a way uh, which didn't have war and possibly didn't even compromise the integrity of, tra of Transvaal. But there were a number of pre-war events, including the fact that Rhodes wanted to do something about it and got Jameson involved. The British sent as a new High Commissioner to Cape Town, Milner, and Milner's job description included annexing Transvaal, even if they would not voluntarily submit to British rule, which, of course, is extremely unlikely. Salisbury, who was the British Prime Minister, didn't want involvement. He despised jingoists and had a very low opinion of the abilities of the British Army. And he also realized the Boers didn't really want war. They wanted to be left alone. But he, but he didn't like the way the Boers treated black Africans, and he didn't want the British imperial prestige to be damaged. So he felt he understood that war might be inevitable. But during the period of British prevarication, no planning was done, no reinforcements were sent, no armaments were built up in Cape Town or Durban, and so as the Boers built up their supplies and stores. So in 1899, a conference was held in Bloemfontein with Milner Kruger of Transvaal and Stain of the Orange Free State. Kruger was prepared to compromise, but surprise, surprise, Milner was not. And as Kruger said at the time, it is our country you want. Yes, is the answer to that. It's quite important to realize just how big blue is Cape Colony, how big it is. The green is the Transvaal, the orange is Orange Free State, the red is Natal, which is British, and the blanks are Lesotho and Swaziland. But basically, it was most of the country run by the British already. So there was a tidying up operation to take over the rest, in quotation marks. So after the threat at the Bloemfontein Conference, the both sides did mobilize. This was easy for the Boers, who could, and they did, mobilize 40,000 already well-armed men from local farmers and townspeople. They formed local militias called commandos, who would elect their own officers. Now, the word commando, which every now good military has a commando force, comes from the Afrikaans word meaning a mobile, which means mounted, infantry unit. And it refers to the unit, not to the individual. The, for the British, getting organized was quite difficult. They controlled the coasts, yes, and they controlled Durban and Cape Town, but they did not know really very much about the interior. Equally, well, more importantly, in a way, the Boers were fighting to defend their home territory, and the British were not. 
So we've met a couple of people already, uh, Kruger and Rhodes. There are two or three more people who need to be properly introduced. Joseph Chamberlain, he was, the, he, was a, he was a liberal reformer and an imperialist, which may seem a contradiction, but he was. He was the British colonial secretary throughout this period. And WSC, as Winston Churchill, referred to him as a man who made the weather. And making the political weather is a phrase that's often used today. And not many politicians are able to make the political weather. I suppose the last one in Britain was Mrs. Thatcher. Milner was a fascinating character. He was the high commissioner and he's later the governor after the war of, of, the, of the two Africana states. And he was also a member of Lloyd George's war cabinet in 1914. He was a classic high panjandrum of the British Empire type. He was the classic high commissioner, Lord High Executioner, Lord High everything. But he was an impressive man. And his rebuilding, his rebuilding of South Africa is what's earned him a place sort of among the good guys rather than among the seriously bad guys. So there's no doubt he was the engineer of the war. Uh, and uh, Louis Boter is another one who was, the, uh, who was one of the Boer leaders and was the later the Prime Minister of the Union. So, in 1899, September, Milner delivered a telegram from Chamberlain demanding immediate and full citizenship for all British residents of the Transvaal. Kruger, not surprisingly, said no. But this was not accepted, uh, and he sent his own ultimatum, which I think was leave us alone. This was not accepted, and October the 11th war was declared. Kruger's refusal to be bullied produced a, res a, a predictable response from the London press. The Daily Telegraph, nothing changes, said, there can only be one answer to this grotesque challenge. Kruger has asked for war and he must have it. I mean, complete nonsense, but as I said, nothing changes. I think I, again, will probably show this map two or three times. Here is the map with the three main sieges. Part one of the war, essentially, were the sieges of three centers. Kimberley, where the diamonds were, Ladysmith, the kind of headquarters, if you like, of uh, one of the bigger cities on the way to Durban, controlled uh, by the British, but really it was one of the Boer access to the, to the sea. And there is Mafeking way up on the border with what is now Botswana. So the, the, the war is usually in three phases. Phase one was the sieges, phase two is removing the sieges, and phase three is the long, drawn-out, painful period of the war when things like concentration camps became a significant feature. In phase one, the Boers won everything. Uh, it's very familiar to any historians of the British military because they had prepared for earlier wars. They had many too few troops with the wrong armaments and the wrong equipment. They had not enough of any equipment, very poor logistics and delivery, and senior officers pretty much out of central casting. Even the name, it's not Redvers, it's Reavers. Reavers Buller. Even the name invites a bit of a snigger, poor chap. But he was, he was actually quite a good general, but he had no equipment and not enough troops. And uh, Kruger, on the other hand, had up-to-date Mauser rifles and 100 Krupp field guns. Now, the British and a lot of imperial troops from India and other parts of Africa were in unfamiliar territories. The Boers were at home. They, they had local knowledge and supply, and they were born to ride and shoot. Their tactics were a bit unusual. They basically started these three sieges. Now, our navy was good, but even the politicians in London knew that the army was not up to it. Lord Salisbury, the PM, is reported to have told a startled Queen Victoria, we have no army capable of meeting even a second-class continental power. So the sieges started. Three sieges, three towns, Kimberley, Ladysmith, Mafeking. 
They were all away from the supply ports of Cape Town and Durban, so it took a while to reach them. The local British troops and the British officers already there did their best defensively, but they needed reinforcements to break out. Buller arrived in Cape Town at the end of October and began the counter-offensive, but say with the wrong equipment, wrong troops, wrong, wrong everything, and made a bit of a dog's breakfast of it. Only when Roberts and Kitchener arrived in January with a lot more troops, a lot more guns, and a much more thoroughgoing approach did the war start to turn. Now, the British strategy was to move up the line of railway to the west and relieve Kimberley and Mafeking, and Buller led a separate major force to relieve Ladysmith. Now, you could argue, one does argue, that the Boers' tactic of three sieges was a bit pointless. I mean, A, so what? They were sieging towns. It was not very nice, but if they'd won, if they got in, what? so what? Uh, and it gave the British Army time to reorganize and re-equip and bring in experienced troops, particularly from India. But it does show, it does show the Boers, where they were too passive, but they were not seeking to conquer British territory. They really just wanted to be left alone. And that's not, of course, what the British wanted at all. The first real battle of the war, ten days after it was declared and before anybody arrived, was at Talana Hill. They were trying to defend Ladysmith. It was a classic Pyrrhic victory. The Boers shelled British positions, the British charged and retook the hill, but lost 446 casualties, including their commanding officer. And while defending Ladysmith, General White, another commanding officer, ordered a counterattack which resulted in losing 140 men and over 1,000 captured by the Boers. So relieving Ladysmith was not very easy. We'll take the sieges in, three, in some sort of order carrying on with Ladysmith. This was Buller's battle, his war. Ro Roberts and Kitchener, when they came later, moved from up the, up the line of rail, Kimberley and then Mafeking. Ladysmith was by far the most important town militarily, so breaking the siege was important, but also very difficult. There were lots of examples of brave and bloody actions, ending with a lot of people being killed or injured. Now, the loss of Tulana Hill was followed by a series of small but vicious engagements around Ladysmith. There was a famous Black Week, which hit the papers in England in December the 10th to the 15th, before the reinforcements arrived. Defeats on all fronts. The worst defeat was in Colenso. 21,000 British troops tried to cross the Tagela River on the way to Ladysmith, and this was defended by 8,000 Boers under Louis Bota, who had better artillery, better small arms, and knew how to use the ground sensibly, and they could build better defensive trenches. By the end of the day, Buller had lost 145 men killed and 1,200 wounded or missing. Now, missing was, may still be, military jargon for those wounded and left behind. The Boers lost eight people, so that's crossing the Tagela, which they did many times. In January, one of Buller's commanders crossed the river, fought their way to a prominent hill, thinking it was a safe defensive position. This was the famous battle of Spion Kop in 1900. This hill is called Spion Kop, and anybody who's read anything about the Boer War will have heard of the Battle of Spion Kop. Capturing the hill was quite difficult, climbing up in the dark to the, to the hill, thinking, right, we've got a defensive position, but in the morning, when the fog cleared, the British defenders could see the Boers were on a slightly higher piece of ground only a few hundred yards away. Contradictory orders were given, advance, retreat, and chaos ensued. The British abandoned their position, withdrew back across the Tequila River, earning Sir Reavers Buller the nickname Sir Reverse 
But they were being fired at from two sides by entrenched Boers. And that, by the way, is guess who? Who's that? I thought you were all experts on the Boer War. That's Gandhi. At the Battle of Spear and Kop, the result was 250 men killed, 1,000 wounded or captured. And because it was a hard-fought war with firing in all directions, the Boers actually suffered much more than their usual level of casualties, 300 of whom 68 were killed. So this was a disaster. It was just another disaster. Partly bad generalship, partly bad luck, partly they were just outmaneuvered by the Boers. But two miscellaneous bits of information. One is that Gandhi, who, as we know, was in India where he learned his law, and when he learned that the British would kind of give in if you didn't fight, if you fought in a different way, so he learned his tactics in South Africa. He was a stretcher bearer, and he was given a decoration by the British for his efforts. And the second point is, cop is a word meaning steep terrace or hill, and that is where the Liverpool Stadium cop gets its name from. It was a, it was a, a serious and significant disaster, so it really turned the British from being, I wouldn't say gentlemanly is not exactly the right word, but from normal battles to saying we must get very, we must get nastier about all of this. Now, in February, only four months after the war started in October, Buller regrouped and launched an all-out attack, which was his fourth. He crossed the Tigreda River again and defeated both those greatly outnumbered forces again near Colenso. And the cost of several attempts to relieve Ladysmith had been over 7,000 British casualties. So this was quite a serious problem, and it took a lot of time, effort, money, people to find it and relieve it. Now, this is not a photograph, this is a painting, so it's a rather glorious and successful scene. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is published by the Mr. T Podcast Studio.